I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Growing up the son of an army officer, I was living in Germany when the Berlin Wall came down in the late 1980s. It was a profound moment in history and not too dissimilar from the metaphorical walls that have been crumbling in short order over the past several years across the country. One that came tumbling down that has had a profound impact on today's guest was the military policy of don't ask, don't tell. Today's guest is an amazing human being that attended West Point following 9-11, served as a combat veteran in both Iraq and Afghanistan, launched a successful for-profit social enterprise that secured a Shark Tank investment from Mark Cuban, and now works to create impact at scale while working inside the federal government once again with the Office of Innovation for Entrepreneurship that's within the Economic Development Agency that's within the U.S. Department of Commerce. Quite the mouthful. Emily Miller grew up in the Midwest in a loving and supportive family that has been a true cornerstone in her story that has enabled her to chart a course many wouldn't dare. Growing up in Evansville, Indiana, um, I had a great childhood. I have uh, fantastic parents, very supportive parents, uh, a great little sister as well. Um, when I decided to, to leave Evansville and, and go to New York to attend West Point for undergrad, you know, my family was thrilled. Uh, I think they were a little scared. You know, no one, not many people in my family had kind of left Evansville. Um, and Shortly after I got to West Point, I guess I was a sophomore. Uh, this was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, so the policy that prohibited um, gay and lesbian service members from, from being out um, with their sexual orientation. Um, I came out to my parents. So I was, I was a sophomore at West Point. Uh, I came out to my sister as well, which was kind of a big gamble. Um, I had no idea, you know, kind of how the chips would fall. Um, and I, I got, I, I realized very early on I was exceptionally lucky. Mm. Uh, my parents you know, just basically told me, we love you. Mm. You know, we don't care about who you love or who you want to love that has no bearing on our support and, and, you know, love for you. Um, and I think that has really, really shaped me, um, and allowed me to, to do things and to take risks and, and to write the things that I write. Um, you know, knowing that I have that foundation kind of underneath me. Yeah. Those are some powerful, I mean, simple words, but also powerful words. We love you. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, when yeah. someone hears that, whether, whatever their circumstance, I think there's a, they feel, uh, trusted, they feel empowered. They feel, um, okay, I, I can go do this. Um, cause, yeah. cause I have people in my corner. So that's, that's helpful. I mean, especially you went to West Point. I mean, I was in the army myself. I didn't go to West Point. I did ROTC. Um, yeah. and I also was in the military during don't ask, don't tell. Um, and it was, it was a, it's a, it's a subculture in American society, um, where yeah. especially at that time, those things were not talked about, you know, and, nope. and if anything, they were talked negatively about. Oh yeah. And yeah. you, you went to the belly of the beast. I mean, you went to the U S military Academy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> intentionally. Uh, and probably, yeah. uh, so talk to me about that. Like, how did you, I mean, Evansville. So I've talked to several people that ended up at West point, uh, some because that was their family history. Um, and yeah. that was just a heritage. And then some that, that sought it out, some that didn't even know what it was, but were kind of encouraged to apply. How did you end yeah. up wanting to do the West point route? 
Yeah, it's it's a uh, it was a crazy journey. I mean, no one in my family had really served in the military. I had you know great grandparents who'd served in like World War One, but no kind of immediate family members that had served, um, and certainly no one that had ever attended West Point. And um, it, it's funny that I, I actually found out about West Point from a, a really good friend of mine who I ran cross country with in high school. And she spent a summer at the Naval Academy for one of their programs for high school students. And she's like, you know, Emily, it's really intense. They yell at you. You do push-ups. You know, you love it. You, ah. should, you should look at it. <laughs> Glutton for um, punishment. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're like, you're, you're intense. Like, you'll like this. Um, so sure enough, I, I looked it up. I looked up West Point. I looked up the Naval Academy. And I think I was instantly just like, this is what I have to do. Mm. Um, September 11th had happened when I was in high school. Um, so that deeply affected me. Uh, you know, I was a little young and naive, but very patriotic. And, um, you know, I'd never been to New York City. I didn't know what the World Trade Center was, uh, but it, it it impacted, you know, all of us. Mm. And um, so once I found out about West Point, I was, I was pretty sold. You know, it had everything I wanted, you know, a great education. I wanted... Um, I wanted to serve in some capacity, you know, I wanted to, to be part of something much bigger than myself. And so West Point seemed just kind of like the, the perfect place for that and a place to challenge myself. You know, I really wanted to do something mm. hard and I couldn't think of anything harder <laughs> than that. So, yeah. Which, which is, yeah, I talked, I mean, I have friends in both ROTC West Point and I grew up a military brat and, you know, yeah. I can trace military service all the way back to pre-civil pre -civil war and I still did it. And I actually intentionally didn't go to West Point. I didn't even, uh, I mean, because everybody I talked to that had done it, they appreciated it after the fact. And I was like, man, college is supposed to be the best time of your life and you appreciated it. <laughs> but it sounds like you really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I, I know people think I'm crazy when I say it. I truly loved West Point. Good. Uh, make no mistake. The first year was miserable. Uh, but I'll say that the, the ensuing three years made up for it by far. Well, I think part of that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you write about it, but you, you mentioned the family, um, that, mm -hmm. that you called it the family. So can you, can you yeah. talk a little bit about the family at West Point that really, I think probably helps support that and make it more of a tolerable scenario for you? Yeah. You know, it's not something that people would expect. I think that is actually the secret sauce. The thing that made West Point so special for me was, um, when I came out to my family um, as gay, I came out to a few friends of mine at West Point as well, um, and pretty quickly realized that there was uh, a strong kind of underground network of LGBT cadets that were there. Um, obviously, we all had to uh, hide our, our sexuality, our orientation, um, but we, we were always able to find each other. Um, and so, you know, just I had this incredible tight-knit group of friends, and I think the enduring the policy of Don't Ask, Don't Tell brought us together in a really unique way. Uh, you know, I wrote about how we would, you know, get on the train to go to New York City. And, and I, you know, I got to experience gay bars in New York City for the first time. Um, got to go to my first pride parades in places like New York and Boston. And, um, you know, so it was just a really special group of friends. And I feel like that in, in some odd way, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy brought us together even closer, kind of the shared struggle that we had. Um, so yeah, it was a really special, it was a really special place. I, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed those years. You know, it, yeah. it was hard. I'm not going to say it wasn't hard, but sure. um, just the kinds of bonds that we developed were really enduring. Well, and I think where we've, where we've 
gotten to as a nation, at least with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and, and yeah. other things that have limited uh, female soldiers, female officers in our services. Yeah. I think the, the nostalgia of looking back, you appreciate maybe the struggle in the midst of it. You wouldn't give me the same same yeah. uh, same yeah, thought, right. but I but I do. Cadet might feel differently. Yeah. Yeah, but I but I think that's a that's a helpful context because because you endured a ton and you but you also with the resolve of friends and family, uh, we've accomplished a lot, um, and, I, and I think in a short period of time, uh, which is great. So let's fast forward because your resume is impressive. Uh, you know, obviously, U.S. Army officer, combat veteran. Um, you inevitably left due to an injury that you experienced in Afghanistan. But through that kind of trial, you, you and some friends, fellow uh, soldiers, uh, started, started a social enterprise. So Rumi, yeah. uh, Rumi Spices, talk to me a little bit about the, the journey to, to starting Rumi. Uh, You've got to throw in the Shark Tank, uh, Mark Cuban story, because I think some people don't, don't know that. Sure. Um, so yeah, give, give us some insight into Rumi and where, what, what that looks like in, in the midst of your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Rumi Spice is a social enterprise, a for-profit uh, B corporation. We import premium saffron and other products directly from Afghan farmers, and we sell it to uh, some of the best chefs and uh, restaurants and, and grocery stores in America, um, and also direct to consumer. Um, but probably helpful if I back up a bit for the origin of it. Um, so I found myself in Afghanistan. Um, I was on a really unique mission that uh, I think a lot of people still uh, don't know about, uh, but we had essentially about 10 years into the war, um, the military realized, hey, we've got these very elite forces, you know, SEAL Team 6, uh, Army Rangers who were out there, you know, doing night raids, uh, you know, working in the, in the villages for village stability operations. Um, and they're all male forces, right? And so we were kind of ignoring the what they call the other 50% of the population, the women and children. Uh, you know, it was culturally unacceptable for these guys to go and, and speak with the women and children. Um, and so they realized, hey, we need to recruit women, you know, incredibly physically fit, culturally astute women to uh, to work with these guys, to go out on missions with Rangers, with SEAL Team Six, with Special Forces. Um, so I was the the second cohort of women that had an opportunity to, to do this mission set. And so I uh, did two deployments to Afghanistan with them and it just completely opened my eyes. Um, you know, I kind of fell in love with Afghanistan, frankly, mm. the, the, the people, the, the country, um, it's just, I think there's a big misunderstanding about what, you know, Afghanistan is because it's only been kind of understood through the lens of war for most Americans. Um, but so I was there in Afghanistan actually at the same time as my, future co-founder, uh, Kim, we were both West Point classmates, uh, both army engineer officers, and we were in Afghanistan at the same time doing very different missions. Mm. Um, so Kim was an engineer officer and she was looking for, for roadside bombs. So doing, um, what we call route clearance, looking for the IEDs on the sides of the road. And of course I was, I was going on night raids, right. With, with army Rangers kind of night after night. And, um, we would sit on the phone at night and, you know, we would kind of converse back and forth about, what we called the endless cycle of violence, which was, you know, Kim would go out, find an IED, clear it, um, and then soon enough the next day, you know, four more or five more in its place. And the same for, for me, right? I felt like, you know, we would go out, we would nab the bad guys, and then the next day five more would pop up. So it kind of felt like this never-ending cycle of violence. Um, and Kim and I started talking about, you know, 
these are kind of the symptoms of a problem, but how do we get to the root of the problem itself? And, and we both felt like um, a, a lot of the Afghans that turned to the Taliban, um, you know, weren't, weren't evil people. They, not all of them were bad. A lot of them did it because they got paid. Um, so I think for us, it was a light bulb moment where we realized, hey, you know, if you can find an economic alternative for, for these Afghans, um, maybe we could turn them away from, you know, joining forces with the Taliban and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, those early days in Afghanistan definitely was kind of a light bulb moment for us. Um, we decided to get out of the army. We both served about five years and um, that led us to business school together. So we both went uh, to Harvard together to get our MBA. And, um, and that's when our, our third co-founder, Keith, he was still in Afghanistan. We were in an entrepreneurship class mm. <clears throat> at Harvard, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, yeah, that's when he kind of pitched the idea of, hey, like I, I found farmers out here that grow some of the best freshest saffron I've ever smelled, tasted. Um, what if we started importing this to the US? Um, and so that's really, that's really where the idea started. And um, that's, you know, kind of Kim and I ran with that in our entrepreneurship class. Yeah. Um, and it's, it took off from there. And it's, it's based out of Chicago. Um, and inevitably, obviously I mentioned jokingly earlier, it was on Shark Tank and, and received an investment from Mark Cuban. Um, yeah. Where, where is it today? I mean, you guys have been at it for several years. It's still alive and kicking, mm -hmm. but what, what are you, what, how's it going? And uh, what's, what's it looking like for the future of Rumi Spice? Yeah. Um, it's, it's been, it's been really exciting. I mean, when Kim and I first got it going, we had about 12 farmers, so it was pretty small. Uh, we would get direct shipments of the saffron and, um, in the early days, you know, we, we started by kind of knocking on doors at, at restaurants, mm. you know, trying to get, trying to get a couple minutes of time with the chefs. Um, and it was always interesting because, you know, it's, it's not, not exactly easy to sell a, a food product from Afghanistan. You know, you get, you get a lot of, uh, you know, skeptical, uh, you know, chefs looking at us, but the moment that they would smell the saffron, mm. uh, you know, they're just everything about their demeanor changed. Um, so, you know, in the early days, it helped that we got our foothold with, um, you know, some of the best chefs in the world, Danielle Ballou, uh, Thomas Keller of the French Laundry. Wow. Um, and, and now, you know, I think we're, it's really exciting. We're about, the harvest is about to happen. So it's a, it's an annual harvest, um, happens about every October, November. Um, and now we're working with, I think upwards of 400, 400 farmers and, and, we're employing thousands of Afghan women um, in the process as well, which was, which was a big part of the mission for us. You know, we were very clear about wanting to be a, a business, be a for-profit business, but um, we also wanted to ensure that we were training and employing Afghan women. Um, one thing we realized was these women were were doing the work. You know, the harvest, the saffron harvest, is kind of an all hands on deck uh, community effort. And, um, the women had been harvesting it for, for decades, right. But they'd never been paid for their work. Um, so when we set up our processing facilities in Afghanistan, we made sure to, um, you know, we wanted to hire women to work in those facilities, which was, which was a big shift. Uh, you know, we had our Afghan partners, they had to literally go to every one of the women's, you know, husband or father or, or brother to get permission for them to work, um, in our facility. And, um, so yeah, you know, we've, we've grown a lot, a really exciting shift where we're bringing in uh, more products. We've just launched a cumin line and we're looking at other um, really fresh spices from Afghanistan. So it's been, it's been an exciting expansion. You know, we finally were the first product to make it nationwide in Whole Foods. So that yeah, was a big, that. 
a really big moment for the team. And, uh, you know, we work with Blue Apron and other distributors too. So, uh, and what's your role, what's your role with the company still? Yeah, right now, co-founder, I know it's, it's, uh, you know, I help with, uh, sales where I can and, uh, you know, a little bit more of a hands-off role. I, I stepped away from the operational day-to-day work, but still a shareholder, you know, still a co-founder. So care, care deeply about, about the success of the company for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, it's a, it's a helpful picture because I think sometimes people are like, wow, you, you've got to be in it, you know, 40 hours a week yeah. that you've got to be your lifetime thing. And, and yeah. I think the reality is like, no, people can do multiple things. Uh, and you know, that's what you're able you're able to help support the expansion and the operations of Rumi Spice, you help get it off the ground, but now you're, you're, you're onto other things. Um, and you, you can do that. You can, you can manage the, the prolific writing that you're doing and federal grant writing through the EDA and all of these other things, um, as an entrepreneur and as a leader. So yeah. it's pretty impressive. Uh, so f- before we fast forward to your, your current work, um, uh, one of my, one of my military, you'll appreciate, uh, I think one of my military heroes was Colin Powell. Um, my yeah. dad, my dad served with him in, in Germany back in the 1980s. Uh, and he, he's well known for his like 13 life principles. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, uh, so I actually have a lot of my team write out cause I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. Like what are those values that drive you? Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I asked some of my, my guests on the podcast kind of what, what drives them. Um, but I think because of the, the threat of your life from, from service, um, from, from combat to now Rumi Spices and, and, and the EDA, I am, I'm really curious to know what, if you could, if you could rattle off a couple of your life principles, what are those values that you hold dear? Those things that you are, you know, pushing forward, um, as a person. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of central to everything I've done is, is, you know, I want impact to be kind of front and center for for me. Um, and I think impact can take many different forms. Um, you know, certainly when we started Rumi Spice, our focus was on, you know, making a fantastic product, but also ensuring that we, you know, positively impacted the lives of, of our farmers, of our women employees. Um, that was really important to me. You know, a lot of people scratch their head when I tell them I I left my company and I'm working for the federal government, (laughs) you know, uh, it's, a startup in the federal government like just couldn't be more different. Um, but I, I, I try to tell people, you know, there, there's no better place than the kind of the role I'm in right now at, at the Department of Commerce to make impact at scale. Um, and I really think we need more entrepreneurs that want to do even short tours of service. Uh, that's, that's kind of what I call it, a tour of duty um, in government where, you know, you're able to make impacted scale at, kind of at a, at a nationwide level. Um, so I think for me, it's the impact. I, I keep coming back to that. And I think the other thing that has always been a, I don't know if you can call it a principle, um, but I, I'm sure you've heard of the Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, the question that always kind of like rings in my ears is like, in X years, will I regret not doing this? Mm. And I'll tell you, when I was in business school, uh, all my classmates were, were uh, trying to get consulting jobs and investment banking jobs and um, nothing against those jobs. They're great for certain people. Uh, but I think for me, I really was just pulled to, I think I've got to make an impact in a different way. People thought we were absolutely insane to start to start a, 
a company based in Afghanistan where a war is still going on importing food products. You know, yeah. people just looked at us like we had a third eyeball. Um, whereas I think we saw this, this uh, just phenomenal opportunity. Um, and I asked myself, you know, in 10 years, am I going to regret not trying to start a company, not trying to start something new um, and to, to leverage my experience in Afghanistan? We were just perfectly positioned um, with our networks and our expertise and knowledge of the country to, to do it. Um, so I think that's another thing I think a lot about. And uh, and on days when I get really tired, there's a there's an Afghan proverb I, I say to myself, you know, just to, to, to level myself. It's, it's drop by drop a river is made. You know, it's day by day, one saffron thread at a time, one grant at a time, you know, hopefully <laughs> we are making a difference, sure. making a difference in, in communities' lives and people's lives. Um, so I'd say that's, that's, you know, some of the things that certainly drive me. That's powerful. Well, okay. So I want to dive into to your current work. Um, but I actually think yeah. before, before we get into that, we actually, it requires a little setup, a little tee up, because I think you said, yeah. you said department of commerce, and then yeah. there's, there's, there's other acronyms like acronyms like EDA, OIE. Yep. So <laughs> it, it's, you this, know the acronym. oh yeah. Oh, the acronym game of the military. Yep. Government loves them. Help, yep. help people, help our listeners understand, okay, what, how, what's the inner, like, what is the department of commerce's role in the midst of EDA in the midst of OIE and, and like, and what are you, what are you working on? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. Um, so Department of Commerce is our is our big agency and the US Economic Development Administration, EDA, is a bureau in the Department of Commerce. Um, so technically I, I belong to EDA and we are within kind of the org chart of Department of Commerce. Um, and then the Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship is, is nestled inside EDA. So um, our work is really all about um, furthering tech-based economic development. So um, figuring out ways to empower high growth entrepreneurship, increase access to capital and really accelerate accelerate innovation and commercialization you know those are those are the things that that drive our country forward um, from from an economic perspective um, so our office is really laser focused on that tech-based economic development and supporting it that's great and and your role specifically correct me if I'm wrong is is kind of obviously working in to support the OIE's mission overall but also policy side so what does that look like uh, on a day-to-day -day basis for you like what are you what are you working on inside of yeah it's a uh, it's it's really fun you know i one thing i tell people is i uh, i was really torn whether i should go to business school or whether i should get go to public policy school and so i tell people you know i i chose my mba but this is my public policy degree you know i feel like i'm, I'm like getting my public policy degree working with oie kind of leveraging all of my experience on the entrepreneurial side and bringing those ideas into government um so what i do on a day-to-day -day basis you know oie we have our flagship grant program built to scale um access ventures you all recently won an award which is great um but the build to program is a, is a $35 million um, uh, grant program going to support that high growth entrepreneurship and increase access to capital. So we're funding the accelerators, the incubators, the seed funds, the, the early stage uh, venture funds that really support entrepreneurs. So unlike SBA, we don't support entrepreneurs directly, but we support more at the, the system level. Um, so how I spend my day now is, is really developing programs and policies to, to continue building out our portfolio. So we just launched a a STEM talent challenge program that I, that I wrote um, really about fostering talent in these ecosystems. One thing we hear a lot from these accelerators and incubators, especially in kind of 
some more of these burgeoning um, early stage ecosystems is that they have a desperate need for talent, right? Um, and so this, this challenge is really designed to, to kind of build the, the systems and the talent development strategies to, to help get that STEM talent into the ecosystems. Uh, we're in the middle of working on um, a pandemic resilience innovation entrepreneurship challenge, which will be, I think, fun. Uh, so how can we leverage innovation and entrepreneurship to really fight this pandemic back? Um, so we're hoping to release that really soon. So that's been a big, it's been a big side project of mine. I'm not even sure I'd call it a side project. That's ah. pretty much what I've been focusing on for the past uh, couple of months. But uh, well, I was yeah, going really- to ask, like, uh, no one could have foreseen what COVID was going to do. Um, and so, you know, as you look at what your plans were for 2020, I mean, there's build to scale, which is kind of an ongoing program, make minor yep. tweaks, I think year to year. Uh, the yep. STEM, STEM talent challenge is, is pretty fascinating, but so talk to me about like, how has the pandemic impacted your work? What, what do you find yourself focused on? What, what, what are the fires, so to speak in, in government that you've been deployed to, to help put out or to, to, yeah. to address? Well, um, you know, EDA received about 1.5 billion um, in funding through the CARES Act. Uh, And so we, and as you can imagine, we are the Economic Development Administration. And I think one thing we can all say is that this has uh, devastated our economy. Um, We have unemployment that is through the roof. Um, And so that has really been, you know, we are trying to stop the bleed. so we've really been kind of all hands on deck running full cylinder ahead uh, to, to really get this funding out into the communities. So that that has been the biggest fire is just, we've been hiring like crazy to have the staff to be able to get the money out into these communities to make a difference. Um, so, you know, that has been an ongoing effort. And then, you know, really developing an, an innovation entrepreneurship focused challenge was important to us. Um, we have so many fascinating um, assets within our OAE portfolio of uh, biotech, supply chain, uh, health security accelerators and startups that are are really itching for the resources to to respond to this pandemic. Um, And so, you know, we're going to do our best to get the money out there to those organizations too. That's great. How, how, so talk to me a little bit about, um, because I know you're obviously we we talked about your personal values and, and kind of what what's brought you even into the EDA. I've got to imagine yeah. though, working with the federal government where you've got all these acronyms and people are, what in the world is that? Commerce, EDA, OIE. Uh, sometimes people don't even know, like the fact that you just threw out $1.5 billion was yeah. part of the CARES Act that went to EDA. Some people don't even know that's a reality. Yeah. And that's a lot yeah. of money. Um, yeah. how, how, what are the conversations like um, and how are you working to, to kind of like to get the information, the word out there. Cause it, you know, if you think about like knowledge is power, um, if yeah. you're, if you're in the know, if you're in the network, you're going to, you're going to find out about these things and y- yeah. then you get the money. Um, but as we, as we've seen because of a lot of the economic injustice for, for centuries in America, there are yeah. a lot of people that don't know, they don't have those networks and those banking relationships established. What, what do you think EDA, OIE, what, what can you, what can you be doing? What can we be doing to help make sure that these underrepresented uh, founders and communities are, are served as, as this money's being deployed? Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. It's top of mind for me. It's, it's really, it's been front and center the entire time. Um, I think it was, you know, the, the PPP loans were a great example of, 
um, you know, just not enough effort was placed on on how we, you know, thoughtfully deploy the funding in a way that uh, maybe helps tilt the playing field towards some of our more underrepresented communities. Um, I know for us, we are we are being as thoughtful as we possibly can about how do we how do we message this and how do we reach the stakeholders that don't know us? How do we get outside of the bubble of kind of the business as usual? Um, you know, I think from from our perspective, we're trying to uh, do new things like uh, better better marketing and supporting documents to help us easily translate this stuff. We've, you know, we're trying to have better branding to reach reach these communities. We're trying to do short documents, one pagers at that, right? So instead of these 40 page funding opportunities, which we still have to do, how can we distill those things down into really easily digestible one page documents with, with infographics and, and you know, webinars that are more easily accessible to communities. So I think we're really trying to lean into more modern uh, branding and marketing practices. Um, so that's one thing we're kind of testing out. And, and um, you know, I hope, I hope that that helps. You know, we're certainly trying to reach a broad broad base of stakeholders, whether that's through targeting uh, partnerships with HBCUs, um, some of our more persistent poverty communities, things like that. You know, we're being thoughtful about getting in touch with them as, as best we can. Um, but it's it's hard. You know, it's yeah. we're at headquarters. It's a national program and it's it's tough. There aren't enough of there aren't <laughs> enough of us. To, you know, to, well, it's kind of around. well, it's helpful because I let your I actually wrote down your 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 favorite African Afghan proverb. Um, because I yeah. saw you write about that at one point, but I think that's a, that's a great analogy or, you know, there's the analogy of the little girl that throws the starfish back into the ocean. You know, yeah. uh, I think sometimes we, we, we can throw these, these, these arrows at the federal government. And we, we, I think you're helping to kind of humanize internally, um, the struggle to say like, no, there are people inside of the system, so to speak, that care and are doing their oh, best yeah. and trying and it's not perfect. Um, but, but we've, we've got to figure it out because to, to really effectively move money fast into these communities, yeah. impact at scale. Um, you and I have chatted offline before. Talk to me a little about, because um, one, one of the problems, and this keeps coming up in, in communities specifically, is there's a, there's a capital absorption issue. Um, and so when you talk about impact at scale, you're, you're talking $1.5 billion federally, where you've got to write significant checks, uh, into large markets to impact at scale. W yeah. What is, how significant is the capital absorption problem? Uh, and by that, I mean like organizations that can handle a significant check, uh, organizations that are positioned well in these communities to really take what they're doing, uh, to the next level. Um, because I think sometimes what the, there's, there's, there's a, it's a two-sided, two-sided sword, right? On one side, yeah. um, maybe they don't need to scale. Maybe what they're doing is effective and awesome yeah. and needs to be supported with smaller community checks. And, and sometimes the, the trouble is they, they end up not able to scale and they, they close their doors or the, the quality of their programming goes down. So how do we balance like success doesn't necessarily mean scale, but how do yeah. we get organizations to a point where they can receive the capital necessary to scale? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, this is kind of why I love EDA. I think we have, we're a very flexible agency. We have a, we have a broad set of tools that we can use at our disposal to help communities anywhere on the spectrum of where they're at. You know, I think, um, I think of, I think of economic development as kind of a, a hierarchy of needs. Um, and some communities are, need more foundational assets, right? Some communities need 
a wastewater treatment plant or better roads. Uh, they need that basic infrastructure. Some need broadband. They need kind of that technical infrastructure. Um, and EDA has tons of programs that are that are available to help with, with that. And we have a very, uh, the thing I love about our model, very decentralized model, right? We, we work in six regional offices. We have economic development representatives at the state level that really know these communities and can help them and guide them to the right funding amounts and the right programs. Um, and then for our office, you know, I think tech-based economic development is, is definitely more at the higher end of the pyramid, right? You have to have that, uh, you know, basic infrastructure, technical infrastructure before you can do things like entrepreneurship support and acceleration. Um, and so not all communities are, are quite ready for that type of work. And, and I think we, we try to be as thoughtful as we can about how do we prepare communities to, to get to that tech-based economic development level. Um, we've been doing some really interesting work with um, Center on Rural Innovation. Um, so essentially providing them funding to do technical assistance with rural communities mm -hmm. to, to give them that technical assistance to help them build up to, you know, a build to scale type program. Um, and so that has been a really successful model we've piloted. And, and I think it'll be fascinating to see if we can replicate that with, with other communities too, but it's, it's a challenge. Not all communities are, are ready for it. And, you know, I always want to tell people that, you know, federal, federal money, it can be expensive, right? It's, it's, it's a little confusing. It's, it's, you know, the forms aren't easy, the, the reporting requirements in it. And I remind people, Hey, it's taxpayer dollars, you know, yeah, we, it's public we dollars. Yeah, we got to be smart and we've got to be good, you know, fiscal agents of that money. So, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's helpful because I think the other the other thing you and I've talked about is just and, and it's funny because you we were in the government, you got out, which some people are like, oh, my gosh, because because it's a massive bureaucracy, you yeah. know, and yeah. you and you willingly dove back in. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I liken it to like an ocean liner, you know, like I'm on this this small little sailboat so like I can make really quick incremental changes and move yeah. an organization or whatever the work that we're doing. Yeah. You're, you're more like in this like massive ocean liner. And so in order to effectively move change, even internally as an entrepreneur, it's, it's small incremental adjustments over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're on a barge. I'm <laughs> <laughs> trying to push it forward. It's not easy to pivot. I will say, I mean, I think the the beauty of my current role is that our office is, I liken it to being a startup in government. And so I think we do have, we are given a lot of flexibility to, to test and iterate and, and really experiment with ideas from a policy perspective. And so that is really liberating and, and fun, frankly. Um, so I think, yes, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a bureaucracy, but I think our office is a really special startup in and of itself. Yeah. So that's so as you look out across the country, because you work federally, what, what are some, some things that you're seeing across the country that are really exciting? Maybe, maybe EDA related, but just as your, from your vantage point, what, what are you mm -hmm. seeing as it relates to innovation, entrepreneurship, and communities of color, in underrepresented communities, um, communities that have limited access? What, what are you seeing that's really encouraging and exciting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been, I've been really excited to see the conversation um, evolve uh, for our underrepresented entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, the numbers are still pretty abysmal. I think something, you know, I don't have the statistics on me at the moment, but I think something like 1% of, of African-American entrepreneurs are getting are getting venture capital dollars. It's, it's maybe a little bit better for women entrepreneurs, but not by much. Um, I've been really excited to see, you know, a resurgence of energy around um, increasing access to capital for these communities. 
Um, I know we have personally talked a lot about the rise of what we call alternative finance, uh, which is also mm -hmm. another exciting trend um, and something that our office has, has uh, we've already funded a few few projects in that space and we're excited to continue it, which is basically that, you know, venture capital is not for, not for everyone. And tr sometimes traditional debt isn't either. So what is that middle ground uh, where we can get creative with capital for our entrepreneurs? And I think that has been a really fascinating discussion that I've, I've had with people kind of over and over again. So that's been, uh, that's been great to see. And I think the thing that excites me most is just, you know, sitting where I'm at kind of at the, at the headquarters level with a bird's eye view, just the incredible work that's happening in every corner of this country. I mean, in our last build to scale announcement that we just made, you know, we funded uh, the Starburst Accelerator, which is working on aerospace innovation in Los Angeles. Cool. Uh, we're funding rural venture capital in Colorado. Uh, we did a really fun industry challenge with Department of Energy for, for blue, blue water technology um, in places like Cleveland. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of work happening that I think people unfortunately don't know about. They, you know, they, they have just not been exposed to it, but it, it excites me for the future of our country. There's so much energy happening. Um, so it's been exciting to be part of that. That's awesome. It's, it's really encouraging <clears throat> to hear you talk, <clears throat> to hear you talk about the alternatives to capital. Cause that's, yeah. that's been a, a growing theme, um, with some of our previous guests, but also, um, just around the country, um, access yeah. to capital lab that, that Kaufman and, and Rockefeller launched, um, and coming out of some of the, the, the moonshot work that Kaufman did several years ago, looking at American entrepreneurship, um, yeah. that your office participated in. Um, but it's also encouraging because I think sometimes people look at the federal government as, a, as behind in trends, you know, and trying to catch up, like moving this, this massive barge, if you will, using your analogy. Yeah. Um, what two things for our listeners, can you explain a little bit more specifically alternatives to, to equity? What, what does that look like? And, um, and, and where, where do you think the federal government is on that, at least from your perspective? And where, where are you hoping we can go with some of those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's still early days. And, you know, the, I think part of the perception about federal government being behind isn't because we don't want to innovate. I think it's more because we, you know, we have statute that we have to follow. And, we have teams of lawyers who try to ensure that we stay within the, the spirit of the, the statute and the law. Um, and so that is always um, that is always a little bit of a challenge. I think I'm also very grateful we have a very innovative team of lawyers who are always happy to figure out how can we how can we get innovative and experiment to help these communities, but also stay true to the statute um, and, and what Congress has charged us to do. Um, so, you know, on the alternative capital side, we've been looking at things like revenue-based financing as, as a really interesting model instead of, you know, strictly equity-based investing where you're doing a convertible note or, or a safe or something like that. Um, one other insight that I've found to be interesting is that revenue-based financing could be, I think, a really compelling model in the pandemic right now. Um, I think we're seeing some entrepreneurs that, you know, their revenue and their business model has taken a hit temporarily, but let's fast forward, you know, eight to 12 months when the market starts to rebound, when we have a vaccine, um, could revenue-based financing kind of fill the gap for some of these entrepreneurs from a financing perspective? Um, I think we're, we're interested in ways we could support that type of work. Um, 
you know, from our office's perspective. Um, so, you know, interesting trends there. We've, we've only just kind of dipped our toe in the water yeah. and made a first, first few grants for, for, um, awards that are doing this type of work. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of room for growth and, and we're, we're definitely paying attention to, to what the market is saying for sure. Yeah, no, that's encouraging. So working at the federal government, I, how, how can, so I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I'm, I'm probably representative of a lot of different communities that are not your Silicon Valley, New York's and, and Boston's. What, what can we do to support, to, to support your work? Cause I think, again, there's, there's a knowledge gap on like what it is that you're doing and, and yeah. how, how innovative I think OIE and EDA are trying to be inside of, uh, the government. How can yeah. communities support the work that you're doing to continue to press this forward? What does that look yeah. like for, for communities to, to, to be champions of, of change and innovation? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the, the, the easiest way is to to talk about it, to amplify the work and, and to let others know that we're, we're doing what we're doing and that we exist. And so even just the small amplification of what we do at EDA is, is, is critical. And I think the second bucket, which is something, you know, we've, we've been doing is continued um, policy collaboration, kind of just brainstorming what's possible, what's needed. It's so invaluable to hear directly from communities, what they're seeing. You're our eyes and ears on the ground. You're the ones who can help us shape our own policy and programming. Um, and so, you know, attending the conferences that we attend and being able to, to hear from stakeholders directly has been invaluable to how we shape the programs. That's great. Um, so for our listeners that may not know about all the offerings of OIE, um, how, how can they, how can they learn more? What's the best way for them to get connected to the information that that's coming out of your office? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, obviously feel free to get in touch with us directly. Um, OIE at EDA.gov. You can always send us an email um, or check out our website, EDA.gov backslash OIE. Um, you'll find a lot of great information about all of our programming um, and all of our, our policy work. It's a great resource there. We've tried to make it as simple and, and easy to understand as possible with, with summaries and infographics and one pagers that kind of describe the, the funding opportunities available. But I'd say those are probably the two easiest ways. Uh, we're always very responsive. So don't hesitate to, to reach out to us. Emily is a prolific writer and advocate for equality. You can check out some of her work in The Atlantic, among many other sources. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.